Could you please rise for the reading of God's word? Today's passage comes from Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went to them. And when he arrived, he took him, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Occasionally, I like to start a sermon with a reading of poetry, and today we turn to those lions of lyrical mastery, Imagine Dragons, who writes, Just a young gun with a quick fuse, I was uptight when I let loose. I was dreaming of bigger things, I want to leave my own old life behind. Not a yes sir, not a follower, fit the box, fit the mold, have a seat in the foyer, take a number, I was lightning before the thunder. Thunder, 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 thun, thunder, thun, thun, thunder, 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 thun, thunder, thun, thun, thunder, thunder. That was, that's, I didn't, I did not lengthen that for the sake of humor. That's the actual song. Kids were laughing in my classes while I was scheming for the masses. Who do you think you are? Dreaming about being a big star. They say you're basic, they say you're easy, you're always riding in the back seat. Now I'm smiling from the stage while you were clapping in the nosebleeds. Now, if you laugh or mock, do keep in mind that Imagine Dragons, if you are not a fan of their music, then you are not a young man between the ages of 12 and 20 in America right now. Their song, Believer... Uh, has the second highest record at number one in the history of music, and Thunder is in its 48th week on the top 100. What is this song about? Well, in essence, right, there's pain. You were laughing at me as a kid, and uh, now I've been dreaming and planning and preparing, and now that I've unleashed my inner strength, 
I am lightning before the thunder, and I am on stage, and you're clapping from the nosebleeds, so ha-ha, it is something of, it's like an ode to Thor. Thor is inside of me, he's been released, and now I'm a massive star. It's a song about power, and it's a song that captures, I think, a sentiment of our day, which is there's an amazing amount of power and resources within me, and as long as I can have access to those and these can be unleashed in an unhindered fashion, then there is nothing that stands in my way. Well, is that really the case? Uh, We're considering two stories about power being unleashed and things changing, and it causes us to ask questions about the nature of God's power on display and what kind of access that we uh, have to it. Uh, We have one healing uh, from a man who's bedridden for eight years. We have one resurrection from the dead. Amazing stories, to be sure, but the question that we have to struggle with is what, what significance do they have for us? In the sense that do you regularly, if ever, see a miraculous healing? Or have you seen someone raised from the dead? Well, if those things aren't regular occurrences, as they seem to be in the book of Acts, then what do these stories have to say to us far removed from that kind of miraculous power being on display? Or is it something about us that fails to meet the mark in some capacity by which we would actually get to experience something like this? So what, what is the significance of these stories? What sense do you make of them, and how would you apply them? This is what we're wrestling with. So let's just take stock of our stories and make sure we understand what's going on. Peter, in the second part of chapter 9 of Acts, is thrust back on center stage. Luke had been focusing on Saul and his conversion. We haven't seen Peter since he went down to Samaria and affirmed Philip's evangelistic work that indeed the Samaritans were converting and oversaw the distribution of the Spirit to the Samaritans. Presumably, he's been wandering, preaching the gospel in the countryside since that time, because now we find him in Lydda, and he comes upon a man named Aeneas, and he says, uh, is introduced to Aeneas, is aware of his condition. He's been, um, in English, we say bedridden, but it's literally, he's been confined to his mat for eight years as a result of his paralysis. And uh, in verse 34, Peter goes to Aeneas and says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And he does so, and as a result of that, what happens? If you look at verse 35, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon turn to the Lord. Miraculous healing. As a result of that healing, many turn to the Lord. Well, meanwhile, in Joppa, about 10 miles away, one of the saints of the church named Tabitha in Aramaic and Dorcas in Greek, same, same person, same woman, uh, dies. And they invite Peter to come down. In verse 36, we see that she was a woman full of good works and charity. right? A saint of the church. And um, Peter's requested to come. It, it's not emphatic why they, presumably they're hoping that he's going to do something, but they make no formal request. And Peter kicks everyone out in a fashion that's very reminiscent, almost identical to the healing that Jesus engages in Luke 7 of the widow's son. And then commands Tabitha to rise, raise up. And she gets up and uh, appearing before um, those in Joppa alive. In verse 42, it says that many in Joppa believed in the Lord. So we have two, two stories that are miraculous. Two stories that are opportunities for Jesus' power to be on display. 
two stories that, as the result of which, many people come to faith. They come to believe on the Lord. So we ask then, well, seeing that there's so many good things in these stories, are these stories normative for the church? Do these present something that we should be expecting that is the status quo within the church today? Again, we then start to feel attention. Well, when is the last time you saw something of this nature? And if we have not seen it, why have we not seen it? So there are different strategies to read this kind of passage. One strategy is to assert that absolutely these are examples for the church. This is the power of the risen Christ being worked out through the Spirit, and we should all expect this kind of healing to take place. And we shouldn't necessarily be surprised if someone is raised from the dead, for this is the power of God at work after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Now, if we were to read it that way, we still have a problem, and so do people who read it that way. And the problem is this. Even though we may say that this should be the norm for the church, I know few people who would claim it to be the norm. In fact, only at best an exception that is, happens occasionally. And so the question then becomes, well, if this is supposed to be the norm, why aren't we experiencing it? And you get various answers to that, and they usually take one of two forms. Because if God is doing this as a norm, right, if this is his power on display and we're not experiencing it, but this is what God's doing, but we're not seeing it, then what must be the problem? Well, it can't be God. To say if God is the problem, he would not be powerful, so we must be the problem. So, usually goes one of two ways. One, you lack faith. If you just had enough faith, God would act in this way on your behalf and do something miraculous. And if it's not faith that's the issue, it's sin. You have some amount of sin, uh, which may be unconfessed, or uh, you're hiding it. Either way, at the end of the day, the reason that you don't experience this is because of something that you're failing to do. Well, that's a lot to put on a person. To say, oh, the only reason you're not experiencing the power of God is because of your unfaithfulness, or your sin, or your lack of faith. It sounds a lot like salvation by works, at least salvation on this side of glory, that you're only going to experience the power of God if you demonstrate a certain degree of faith, or if you're sure to root out all the sin in your life. It's not the only problem to this reading strategy. We could also say that it doesn't do a very good job of explaining what we see in Scripture. And even after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, when we move from the Gospels into the letters of Paul and the letters of Peter and the letters of John, and see the church grow and develop and mature, as we move away from the cross, we see fewer and fewer miracles. Well, why is that the case if this is supposed to be the norm for the church? Why is it diminishing? And a question that's closely related is even as the miracles are diminishing throughout the New Testament, we see almost increasingly a value placed upon suffering. Well, if there's a value upon suffering, how in the world... If the best thing, if you're in the best place, sinless and full of faith, and you get healed and you're free from suffering, then why would the New Testament say there's a value to suffering? That suffering is something that you actually need to grow in faith. That doesn't make very much sense of the New Testament. I would say this reading doesn't explain our experience very well either. In this sense, uh, I don't know about you, but in my life in the church, a lot of times I've seen saints not be healed. 
And I've seen real gumshoes that don't necessarily exhibit any real degree of faith experience some kind of miraculous healing. And you think, God, what are you doing? Right? How do you, what is this economy? I don't understand what's going on. Right? But if you, if you take this reading that, that I'm outlining for you, you have to say, well, it's the people who are most filled with faith and who have the least amount of sin who receive healing. Well, that's not what I see. In fact, it's often the opposite. So I think this reading has a number of problems. Now, the other reading, the other basic approach when we engage this kind of story of miraculous healing is to say that uh, this is something that's special, something that's happening in a unique place, in a unique time, for a unique purpose, and isn't necessarily the norm for the church moving forward. That God is accomplishing something Right? perhaps not least of which is establishing the apostolic authority of Peter right? and giving credence to the gospel going forward to the, for the first time. But it isn't necessarily something that's going to repeat, be repeated all the time. And that, that reading, I think, makes better sense of the New Testament as a whole. And I think it makes better sense of our experience as a whole as well. But I think a certain degree of frustration still remains, does it not? The guy, I can I'm very serious with you that these passages on one level frustrate me to a significant degree. And they frustrate, frustrate me in this sense that um, we, we all know people who we love that struggle with chronic conditions. And you read the story of Aeneas and is there not part of you that says, is this story just here to mock us? Right? If you would do this for Aeneas, God, during the book of Acts, why won't you do it now? We also, probably almost everyone, knows people who have lost people in an untimely fashion. Uh, children or spouses. And you read the story of Tabitha being raised from the dead and you think, is this intended to mock us? I can't imagine. Um, you know, imagine being in Joppa Presbyterian Church. And you've lost a child, which would have been the norm back then or you've lost a spouse, right? Death rates were a lot higher then than they are now. And here's Tabitha, right? You know what you're feeling. I don't like Tabitha. Why did Tabitha get bit to be raised from the dead? I don't even like her quilts and handiwork that it, the, the widows are showing off, right? Because that would be hard. Why, why did she get to be raised and all these other people didn't? So there's a, frustra a real frustration there that can't be glossed over. But it also can't be allowed to rule the day in the sense that um, we can't assume, presume that God is being stingy, which I think is our default. It's to say, God, you seem really generous in acts. Why now are you being so stingy with us in terms of miraculous deeds and the outpouring of the Spirit? So let's pretend just for a minute that uh, acts is still, still running strong. And uh, Zach and I and the elders were healing left and right. Uh, you, in fact, if you have some chronic condition or a dead person, you can pull up out here. We'll come out. We'll reach in the window. We'll say a little prayer, lay hands, and you're good to go. Okay? That's going on. All right? Now we think, well, that'd be pretty cool. Right? And in one sense, it would be. But what would be the cost if that was the norm? How would life change for us if that was going on all the time? I'll give you three 
I think, three huge problems if God allowed that to be the norm. Number one is that you would have no community. Right? So imagine your child has cancer and your child is immediately healed because you run by the church. Well, suddenly all the people that you needed for meals and for rides to the hospital and for watching your kids while you had to be with your sick child and for helping to meet the bills suddenly are absolutely unnecessary. And the needs that establish the basic framework of community not existing then kills the community. You no longer have a need for one another. Jesus, in the mysterious ways that he works, has declared that we are his body. We are his hands and his feet. And as we minister to one another, we experience the love and grace of Christ through that ministry. It's been his agenda that that's how his healing in greater or lesser extents would take place. And it is only by virtue of that mechanism of the church moving forward as the body of Christ that we actually experience or have the opportunity to experience real community. If healings were just handed out all the time, that would be unnecessary. Number two, uh, you would have a terrible time loving God for who he is. You'd simply love God for what he did. Now, you could say, how could this be? Wouldn't I love God more if he did amazing and miraculous things? And yes, there would be a sense in that we are very grateful. But you tell me how often you seek after God in the midst of things going really well. When everything in your life is running along basically as you see fit or you desire, do you find yourself pressing more into God or moving away from him? The answer, of course, which you well know, is that you move away from him because you don't need him. You think everything is fine. It's only in the midst of our challenges, our suffering, our frustration that we move toward God. But it's even more than that. It's not just moving toward God. If it was only moving toward God for what we need, then we really would only love him for what he can give us. But by withholding that at various times, we're called to love him for who he is, right? You know... Imagine a marriage where two people just get married because, mostly because of what they perceive the other person can deliver to them. Uh, when we ministered in, in New York City, there was a running joke because this was literally happening at the time. Uh, people who were interested in each other would get together and would, would exchange, essentially exchange portfolios. Would say, okay, this is how much I'm worth. This is how much I'm making. Uh, this, is my, this is my future prospect. This is how much I intend to be worth at 40. Um, you know, these are my athletic virtues, so on and so forth. And they would compare, essentially, resumes and decide if it was a good business arrangement to get married. Now, if, you're, if a marriage is based on that, it moves forward, and suddenly somebody gets sick, somebody can't make that anymore, somebody become, you know, we all become le less and less attractive, um, or you can't, you, you're not successful in having children, any of these things, suddenly the person can't deliver in the way that you would hope to when you engage with that arrangement. And a marriage of that fashion, of course, is probably going to crumble. Right? Unless someone in that marriage decides, okay, I got into this for some of the wrong reasons, but I'm going to love you apart from what you can deliver to me. 
And when God withholds some of the things that we want from him, we're forced to make that decision. Either I'm going to love God for who he is, right, and be drawn into his glory, right, or I'm going to move away because I'm frustrated because he's not giving me what I want. But that very opportunity causes us to grow in love, uh, in real love for the Father, for his character, not simply for what he delivers. And third, if healings were just handed out miraculously all the time, you would never grow and mature as a believer. Without suffering, we are deprived of the opportunity to wake up. Because we enter this world and we come up with stories and images, stories that are narratives that explain what we want to do and why we're doing it. And we think they're great and we have images that we make of ourselves and of other people. And we, we, we make our way through this kind of mythical reality until it's shaken up by real suffering. And we say, oh, what is reality? And where do I really stand in this? And how do I relate to God in the midst of this? And it's the suffering that opens our eyes. I'm always amazed by the uh, reality that uh, when you, for amputees, right, somebody who's lost a limb, if you, when studies are done that ask amputees, I think, it, you know, five years later or so, do you want your limb back? The answer is like between 90 and 100% now. Right? Can you imagine losing a limb and then deciding that you, if, you had to ha- if you had the opportunity to go back and not lose your limb and deciding, no, I don't want to go back. And the reason they give is always the same. It's like I'm a different person as a result of what I have suffered. I don't want to go back and be the person that I was before. I want to continue being the person I am shaped as a result of this, and I never would have woken up if I didn't lose that limb. It's the suffering that actually brings someone awake, and it's for this reason that Peter will write of the importance of suffering, which again, if we were to expect healing all the time, this wouldn't make any sense, but in 1 Peter 1, Peter writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What's Peter saying? See, it's now part of God's economy that you have to be thrust into the fire just like a metal. But it's the fire that burns away those impurities, and what's left is something that is pure, something that is to his glory. And Peter considers it so important that he says at the end there of that section in chapter 1 that this is necessary for the obtaining of your salvation. This is something that purifies and refines your faith that you would be woken up this, this nature of suffering. So what I've tried to do is give you three reasons the scripture presents to us of why it would not actually be a good thing if this latter part of Acts 9 was normative all the time. It would not make for a healthy church moving forward over time. It might have been necessary as the church is being established Right? And please don't hear me as saying that, 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 God, that God cannot choose to heal, and that, nor that we should not pray for healing, nor that we should not rejoice when God does heal. 
But when we read these stories, we have to wrestle with, is this the norm? And if it's not the norm for us, if it's not the everyday expectation for us, then what are we supposed to do with it? Again, as I said before, sometimes it feels like God is being a bit stingy and withholding from us that which he's done miraculously at various times. And when we feel that way, that God is being stingy, when we enter that place of frustration, I think very often, and we see this on a, on a macro level culturally, we move away from God. And we choose instead to invest in our own strength. And suddenly, the mantras of thunder by imagined dragons resonate with us deeply. Because if God is not going to be the lightning before the thunder, then I have to be for myself. And so I want to believe in a story in which there's untapped strength and power within me. And once it's released, it will overcome those things that that stand in my way. The power lies within. Huh. That's He-Man, right? Remember 1980s He-Man? Okay, never mind. So that uh, is one approach, Imagine Dragons. Uh, but what if, what if the reality is that God, in withholding his, uh, his miraculous healing power, is actually not only expressing love, but is still healing us, though in a different way. Right? You know, um, the verbs that are used here um, are, are the same verb in Greek. So to Aeneas, Peter says, rise up. And to Tabitha, he says, rise up. And the verb that's being used there is the same verb that's used for Jesus' resurrection. So the notion that, that Luke is presenting is Jesus has been raised, Aeneas has been raised, and Tabitha has been raised. And I think the real question for us is, are we being raised? And I think the answer is yes, though not necessarily in the fashion that Aeneas and Tabitha are raised. Uh, Molly and I have been watching uh, Stranger Things, which is a very fun, very well done science fiction drama on Netflix. And in season two, it's, <laughs> some people are shaking their heads, and I know you don't like it, so sorry. <laughs> uh, season two, there's this great scene where, and if you just say, pretend I just brought you into the room, you hadn't seen Stranger Things at all, and I showed you this scene, and this is what you would see. You would see this mother tying down her son to a bed and surrounding him with heaters in front of a, a fire so that the temperature becomes inexplicably hot, and he starts sweating profusely and screaming, uh, writhing in pain, and his brother, older brother standing nearby is, is begging for him to be released, that it's too much for him. And his mother uh, keeps turning up the heat. And so at one point, he gets one hand loose and starts to try to under, untie himself. And his mother jumps on top of him to hold him down. Now, if you just had that scene, right, you think, well, somebody needs to call CPS. Right? This is a very problematic situation. Nothing healthy is, is happening here. But if you, if you know the narrative arc and you backed up a little bit, uh, your opinion would completely change because then you would understand that, you know, in the science fiction drama, uh, Will, who is the child, is the boy, is, is uh, possessed in a sense by this, this monster from another world, the shadow monster. And the shadow monster is like a virus and it doesn't like heat. And the heat is expelling the virus 
from Will's body. So as painful as it is for the mother to watch what's happening to her son, she's, she's making this sacrifice so that the son would be healed. And then there's this great part, you know, the arm's loose and he's trying to get out and she's on top of him holding him down. And he reaches up to strangle her, right? Because he's not, he's not him. And when that happened, I was like, oh, that's so great. That's the cross, right? God enters in to save us, right? And we are not ourselves as a result of sin. And when he comes, we would strangle him unto death. But it's out of love, right, that he would carry through so that we might be redeemed so that sin, right, sin and evil can ultimately be expelled. And this is uh, very much what is happening. It may not be the raise up of Aeneas. It may not be the raise up of Tabitha. But it's a raising up. It's a healing and it's a liberation. And it's a way of doing it that's better for the church as a community moving forward than it would have been if we just continued on with Acts chapter 9. Can we ask or wrestle with the question, is God stingy? I think certainly we can ask it and wrestle with it. But I think we have to end with Paul's answer in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father, we praise you this morning and we thank you for your word that grants us life. We pray that you would uh, forgive us for often we don't see things as you see them and we only see small bits and we get very frustrated. And we thank you that you're kind and patient with us. And we acknowledge that that frustration is real. There are just days where we wish you would pull off an Aeneas or pull off a Tabitha. But let us not assume, uh, Father, that we know uh, best or fully. Let us not assume that we know the whole narrative arc. And let us not underestimate what you are doing in the midst of our suffering through the power of your spirit. So we ask humbly that you would uh, help us to see better. We pray that you would uh, give us a, a grander scope of vision. And we ask that uh, even in the midst of our suffering, uh, we would uh, pursue you and seek your face and in the midst of that, believe that uh, we are like gold being refined. And for your love for us and your willingness to spare not even your own son, we give you thanks this morning. In Christ's name, amen.